Good morning, church family. If you would please stand for a reading of God's word. We're going to be reading Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3. That can be located on page 299 in the blue Bibles that are located in the seat pocket in front of you. If you do not have a Bible at home, please take this Bible home as our gift to you. Okay, Psalm 133. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is God's word. Thank you, Landy. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and ask you to prepare our hearts to be good ground, to receive the the seed of your word, that uh, we would hear it and that something good would grow, something lasting would grow, something beneficial, something abundant would grow in us, Lord, as we hear your word. And God, we pray that you would Take your word and use it as, a, as a, a, a means to draw us to one another, to draw us into unity with each other. God, we pray that we would honor you in this, that we would not allow things that are petty, things that are divisive, things that are uh, offensive, God, to separate us, but Lord, that we would dedicate our hearts uh, to each other as we dedicate our hearts together to you, Lord. And so I thank you for this. Lord, thank you for preparing our hearts. Now prepare me to be able to speak, God, in a way that honors you, that I would not in any way take away from your word or add to it, but Lord, that I would speak it as it was given and um, and that the intent that you had for this this psalm would be clear and presented rightly in Jesus' name. I thank you for this. And um, I thank you for the for this moment that you brought us together to be under your word in Jesus' name, Amen. You can be seated. Um, so, uh, want to just uh, welcome you back from Thanksgiving. I hope you all had a great one. We did. Uh, we got to be with all of our family, and hope you did too. Um, we uh, we are almost done with the songs of ascent. There were fifteen of them, and we're on number fourteen. And next week is going to be a real interesting week. We'll wrap up the series, but in doing so, we're actually going to launch our series for the few weeks preceding Christmas. So I hope you'll make plans to be here for that. But as we've studied these songs of ascent in Psalms 120, and we'll end in 134, um, we've seen over and over again powerful analogies of the Christian life and of faith in God and what that is like. Um, now, if you'll recall, we've said this over and over again, but the original singers, these are songs, these are hymns, and the original singers of these songs were, uh, the, were people who were offering praise as pilgrims who were journeying towards Jerusalem to uh, be there to worship at the annual feast that God had called them to. And as they were going along the road, as they were ascending, that's where the word comes from, Songs of Ascent, as they were ascending up to Mount Zion, they would sing this this collection of songs. This series of psalms from 120 to 134 was their hymn book, as it were. And uh, as Christians, we do not have the physical Jerusalem as our destination. We have something much better. We have full salvation. We have eternal reward. We have unending worship at the throne of God as our destination. And so we too are ascending someplace, and that's what makes these psalms so important to us um, as Christians. Now last week, if you were here, um, we pondered how for the Jews, um, David, King David, represented uh, God's anointed one, the one that he had chosen. And his kingdom, the kingdom that God had delivered to David, was understood to be unending. We've also, as we've talked about all through this series, because it comes up over and over again in almost every one of these psalms, 
We've talked about the unmovable nature of Mount Zion. This is the mountain uh, in present-day Jerusalem where the temple stood, and and it was it was understood by the Jews to be the dwelling place of God. The Ark of the Covenant was there, and and they they imagined the 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 actual well, actually didn't imagine it was the physical manifest presence of God was above and in that place. But as we've said many times, and this is the most important thing when you are interpreting Old Testament scripture, David and the temple were temporary earthly shadows of a greater eternal substance. In other words, they were, they were an idea, a type, a shadow of something that was to be revealed, a greater substance that would be revealed. And, and we see that in the New Testament. In fact, in Matthew 20, uh, 22, it becomes very clear to us, for example, there's other places as well, that David was a foreshadowing of Christ the Messiah. And according to the flesh, we see this, that, that Christ descended from David. He would have been his great, 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 whatever grandson. But, but according to Christ's eternal and divine nature, he was not David's grandson. He was David's Lord and David's God. The one who would fulfill the prophecies that are made about David's line was actually the one who wrote those prophecies. He was the author of those prophecies. And the New Testament also shows us the, the church as the true temple of God. The way Peter put it in his epistle is he said that the saints that comprise the church are the living stones that make up the temple of God. So all the kingdom prophecies about the eternal nature of the temple in Jerusalem are being fulfilled not on a mountain in Israel, but they're being fulfilled through the church of Jesus Christ. Now, and, and this is important because this is where a lot of Christians get into a misunderstanding about where we are in our historical timeline. Because you understand Solomon's temple, the one Solomon built, as well as the one that was rebuilt by the returning exiles coming back from Babylon, and the one that was expanded much later by Herod the Great, all of those temples were desecrated and eventually destroyed by invading armies. There is nothing left of them now. You've heard of the Wailing Wall. Well, that actually was a part of the wall around it. It wasn't even part of the temple. There's nothing left of those temples now. And this is important to understand because Jesus said this. In Matthew 24, verse 1 and 2, he says, it, it tells us that Jesus left the temple. He'd been in the temple teaching, and as he was going away, when his disciples came to point out to him the magnificence of the buildings of the temple, all these things that, that they were looking at. But Jesus answered them, verse 2, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so with this prophecy of Jesus fulfilled in AD 70, the temple was a temporary shadow. But the reason that's important is because if you see that, you got to understand that the church is the eternal substance. It is the fullness of God's design for all time. So that was all in, in Psalm 132. So one, Psalm 133 builds on Psalm 132, and it solidifies this theme of the anointing on Israel's king slash Messiah. And it tells how that that anointing, this is what we learned from Psalm 133, we learn how the anointing extends to his people and the blessing also rests on them. And, and it, it, it rests on the people of God, not just a city or a mountain or a temple where they gather. The, the, the people are blessed, not the location. And, and so that's where, that's, that, that's the background we have as we stumble on verse 1 of Psalm 133, which says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, I want you to, to, to think about those words, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And what I want you to, what I want you to ask you to do is to fight all of your instincts and not rush past the very first word in that verse. The first word we read is behold. Now, we don't use the word behold in, uh, in you know, conversation a lot. When I'm looking for my keys and Ginger finds them, she doesn't say, behold, here's your keys. We don't do that. 
But what this word means, literally, it, it, it's, it's an announcement. It means stop and look. Pay attention. Hey, up here, up here, up here. That's what it means. Behold, look, look, look at this. It means that, that I want you to take notice. I, I, I don't want you to miss this. And so in all of his writings, and he uses this word a lot, but in all of this writing, when it comes to talk about unity, David says, behold, hey, look at this. I want you to see something here. I don't want you to miss this. This is so good. I don't want you to walk away from what I'm trying to show you. David is telling us that there is something so beautiful about unity that we should take it to heart. And we take special notice because unity, as David describes it, is both good and pleasant. Now, again, it would be real easy for us to just read right over that and go, okay, well, you know, great to be together, to not argue, to not fight. That's good. That's pleasant. You know, okay, what's the next thought? No, no, no. Slow down just a second. It's good and it's pleasant. Do you understand that many things in this life are good? If I had a tumor and I went to have surgery to remove that tumor, that surgery would be good. But all of my associations with doctors usually tell me that they are not pleasant. Something can be good, but not pleasant. When we discipline our children, it's a good thing. We're shaping them so that they won't be you know, destructive to society, but it's not pleasant for them or us. So there's a distinction between what is good and what is pleasant. What is good is not necessarily pleasant, and what is pleasant also, similarly, is not necessarily good. Pleasant comes from the same root as pleasure. And a lot of the things that we find pleasure in, and we all know this, there's no innocent people in this room, we all know it, myself included, that those things which are pleasant are not always good. Sometimes they can be sinful and sometimes they can be destructive and that the 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 pleasure is fleeting and passing and it's it's only for a brief season but the stunning thing that prompts david to call our attention to this fact about unity is that it is both good and pleasant it's good and it's pleasant when brothers dwell together brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And so unity represents something that we should desire, that we should long for, that we should strive after. Why? Why would we want to deny ourselves what is good and what is pleasant? Now, I have heard this verse all of my life, even before, when I was in, uh, in church as a small child and not even a Christian, I've heard this verse. And usually it was it was used almost as a mode of chastisement to get people to get along in church politics or a theological position. It's, hey, it's good and pleasant for brethren to dwell together in unity. And certainly there is some element to that. I mean, obviously we don't want everything to be, you know, battle royal every time we come to church with each other. But, but what I want you to understand this morning is that this idea of unity being good and pleasant actually means so much more than that. And the beauty of it to the church is so much more than just us, you know, holding our nose and getting along when we don't agree with something. As a song of ascent, think about, let's, let's think about this historically again. As a song of ascent, the tribes of Israel, numbering in the hundreds of thousands, would reach the holy city. And when they got there, they would look around at the multitudes, the, the hundreds of thousands that were gathered there for the same reason, the unified reason that they had come. And they would be gathered in one temple and they would be gathered around one common altar and they would be there to worship the same god now you might want to look at me this morning it's okay it won't hurt my feelings and say well duh of course that's what happened but what i want you to understand is that is so unusual for the times that they were living in think about that 
that they would come to one place to worship one God was absolutely unusual. All of the nations surrounding them worshipped a pantheon of gods in all kinds of different places for all kinds of different purposes. If you needed your wife to be fertile, you worshipped this God. If you needed rain for your crops, you worshipped this God. And so they, they had all of these things. But the, but the people of Israel were so unique in their time because they had one God, one place of worship, one type of sacrifice. They had all of these things ordained by God himself. And so it was different. And so it wasn't just, however, the mere uniformity of worshiping the one God of Israel that made them so different. Their unity was actually seen in the way in which they worshiped him, the things that were the motivation for their worship of him. They, they were united together as the people of God at their very best. They were united in their reverence for His law and for the holiness of God that His law represented. They were united in the conviction that the Lord was the only true God and that there was no other. They were united in their affections. In other words, their love was directed towards this one God. They recalled the Shema Yisrael, which is the, 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 the little uh, recitation that they always began their morning and evening prayers from the book of Deuteronomy. It spoke, this uh, Shema Yisrael spoke about the, the uniqueness of their God and, and as well as the commandment that he gave them to love him fully. You know it. Hear, O Israel, the Bible says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your might. He is saying that there is no division in God. And and because of that, there should be no division in the way that we love and approach God. And with this remembrance, the people of God would be unified in their devotion. They would focus love and worship on God alone. And as their God was one, they too should be singular in heart, in soul, in might, and together they should be one in their communal devotion to the Lord their God. But they were also to be unified in their duty. They were to be unified in doing what is good and in turning from evil. As we've seen over and over, and we mentioned earlier in this message, what is seen in the shadows of Israel's history should be replicated in the substance of Christ's church. What do I mean by that? Well, we too, like Israel, should be devoted to the pure worship of God alone. And again, well, of course we should be. But think about what sometimes we're devoted to. We might be devoted to pet doctrines or church church governmental styles or denominations. Rather... Instead of all those things, we should recognize that Jesus is the Lord of all who call on his name, no matter how deeply held and how important our distinctions are to us. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I've I've preached about this before, that there are distinctions that we hold that are important. It's why this group of people formed this church, because we have doctrinal distinctives Doctrinal things that are that are, are important to us from our understanding of Scripture. There has to be doctrines that we must agree on. It's these that I read to you earlier from the from the Apostles' Creed. There, there has to be things that we agree on. And if you don't agree on those basic doctrines, then the shock is that you're not a Christian. And you can't call yourself a Christian by any definition if you reject any one of those doctrines. And so nobody disagrees with that. We should agree on things such as the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, all of those things. But there there has to be other things on which we are willing to allow for liberty of conscience. Because while our friends don't understand everything perfectly, we have to be honest enough to confess that we don't either. And if we don't have that willingness to, for the sake of unity, to allow for some liberty of conscience on lesser issues, we will wind up slicing and dividing the unity of the body with our religious demands. So 
how can we know if we're truly walking in unity as the body of Christ? Well, let me just give you five things to consider. First, to walk in unity means that you cannot elevate or despise others because of or because of the lack of their youth or intellect or their gifting, their talents. To, to, to have unity, you, you must believe that God is the Father and Christ is the Redeemer of all believers alike. Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, whatever, that those who call on the name of the Lord, God is their Father, Christ is their Redeemer. We believe that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and it is these realities that are the basis for our fellowship. Our fellowship can never be based on wealth or status or talent. We don't ever, uh, you know, cater to one specific, you know, ethnic group or one socioeconomic group or anything like that. We are, we, all we are looking for is people who will put their faith in, in the one Lord signified by one baptism. The member, another thing to remember is that the members among us who seem to be least in whatever category that we're measuring, that person is absolutely essential to the completeness of Christ's body. No one in Christ's body is trivial or expendable within the church. Anything that, you know, and every once in a while you'll see somebody that, that rises uh, to some prominence in the church because of leadership or gifting or spiritual insight. But we need to realize that when that happens, when somebody rises in leadership or insight or gifting or whatever, that that is entirely a gift of God. And so therefore it excludes any boasting on, on that person's part. And to ensure these values, to ensure that those are the kind of things that we are majoring in, we have to commit to walking in mutual humility. That means that both parties, in order to have unity, have to have a degree of humility. Have you ever experienced in marriage where one person is willing to be humble and the other person is not? Now, Y'all are all looking for me for the next thing I'm going to say, but I'm just going to tell you, Ginger has been in a marriage like that. She did, I won't tell you which party has been humble and which one hasn't, but Ginger has definitely experienced that. It doesn't work well. To, we have to walk in mutual humility because pride, if you hear nothing else I say this morning, pride makes unity impossible. It makes it absolutely impossible to have unity. Therefore, we in the body of Christ, if we're determined to have this good and this pleasant unity, we must be quick to forgive. Because unforgiveness in a church squelches unity like nothing else can. We have to not only be willing to forgive everybody else's horrible, awful, drastic sins, but we must be willing to confess and to repent our own sins or they will eventually surface and they will disrupt the beauty of our unity. All of these things are so vital. Why? Because pride says this. Pride says, hey, I'm the ultimate good. But the Bible says that brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity is good. Unforgiveness says, my vindication and the punishment of my enemies will be pleasant. But the Bible says that the unity of the brothers and sisters is pleasant. Sin in our own hearts seduces and tempts us by portraying itself always as good and pleasant. You have never been tempted by a sin where the devil shows you the sin and says, man, this is going to wreck your life. Have at it never happens. It always comes as something good and pleasant. But the, the veneer gets stripped away and, and, and we see that there's, those things were not good and pleasant. But behold, behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. So if this is all true, then every single day that you are a part of the body of Christ, or if I may say, a body of Christ, like here at Northridge, you have to choose between pride or humility. Between unforgiveness and forgiveness. 
You have to choose either what is ugly and corrupt or what is good and pleasant. So the question that I have to put to you, I have to, is which will you choose? Are you waiting for your vindication? Are you waiting for the, the, the you know, fire to fall on your enemies? Are you waiting for someone to recognize how gifted and amazing you are? Are you waiting for, for any of these things? Are you, are you trying to protect some secret sin so no one will find out? Well, then you're making a choice. So which will you choose? What will you desire? Is the goodness and pleasantness of this kind of unity worth you making some hard or uncomfortable choices, some hard or uncomfortable moves towards humble repentance or forgiveness today? Moving on, David shows us in the remainder of this passage through two analogies what this unity is like. And these are powerful. First, he says this in verse 2. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. This is referring to when Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, was anointed for that job and and, and the cruise of oil was poured on his head and it literally flowed all the way down his head, onto his beard, onto his robes. It, and David, looking back through the corridors of time, is, is looking at that in the same. And that's the powerful picture of what I am getting at. And, and, and so my question, and the question for all of us interpreting this passage is, how does that show us unity? Well, Charles Spurgeon helps us out with that. He saw four things in this simile of unity being like the oil with which Aaron the high priest was anointed. And first he said that, it, that it's like that because that oil that anointed Aaron had a sweet perfume about it, his words. The oil that was used for anointing Aaron, as well as the tabernacle and the instruments that were used in it, were, was made of liquid myrrh and sweet-smelling cinnamon and aromatic cane and cassia and olive oil in very specific proportions. And it, and it put forth an aroma that was both good and pleasant. When Aaron was anointed with this oil, it was so he would have a unique scent that was special to him. It was a strong, sweet scent and it set him apart. When he came in to the group of people, they'd say, and that guy, you can tell by the way that guy smells, he's the high priest. Unity among Christians is the same way. Unity among Christians makes us smell sweet to the world. What did Jesus say? They will know that you're Christians when you have love one for another. Unity among Christians makes us smell sweet to each other. No one wants to go to a combative, contentious church. They want to be where people love each other. And most importantly, the unity among Christians is a sweet aroma to God himself. It's a scent that can't be confused with mere worldly philosophies or religions. That odor is the high karate of, you know, of a spiritual sense. That's what, that's what you have when you, when you have worldly philosophies and worldly religions. And it has a sense, but it's entirely different. It's less satisfying and, and it doesn't leave the same impression as the sweet smell of unity does. Secondly, Spurgeon says that it is a holy thing. And this was exclusively, this, this anointing oil and the scent it produced was exclusively God's scent. Because this oil was not to be used, if you've read through the book of of, uh, Exodus, this oil was not to be used on any common things or any common people. It was only to be used to anoint the tabernacle, the, the items in the tabernacle, the priests. Because of the aroma, it belonged to God himself, and it was only to be used for the purposes for which he had ordained it. Now think about that, that God allows this sweet-smelling aroma to be only for his purposes. And think about that. What a holy thing Christian unity must be if it's not found among the common graces 
of the world. What I mean by that is you don't see anything quite like Christian unity. You'll see some level of unity, but you don't see anything quite like Christian unity among the the gatherings of the world. It's never as sweet. It never smells as good. It's only believers in holy communion that are covered with this special oil of gladness that gives off the fragrance of heaven. The world may know love and unity in degrees around some project, some movement, some political idea, but it's usually for temporary and oftentimes selfish reasons, selfish circumstances. Yet this world outside, they know nothing of the love that lays down its life freely for one another, or that even looks past this life to the eternal joy of being together with one another in unending fellowship and worship to Christ. That's the sweet smell. That's the aroma. That's the fragrance. Thirdly, Spurgeon says it's a diffusive thing. Now, please, no one judge my manhood by this confession. But in my office at the house, I have an essential oil diffuser. And so I know, I know, I, I, you know, I know. So I also have a gun, so maybe that kind of balances it out. So the, uh, um, so in this, in this off, in this thing, sometimes, uh, you know, I'll, uh, you know, just throw some peppermint or whatever in there. And, and it's, it, you can always count on it when I do. Ginger can be in the other side of the house and she said, man, it smells good because the idea is there's this device that is putting that scent all into the atmosphere. And this is what Spurgeon meant. Now, sometimes here at church, somebody will say, hey, we're sick and we believe what James says about coming to the elders of the church, anointing them with oil, praying for them. And so when we do that, if you've ever witnessed us do this, or we've ever done it to you, we, we have this little bitty thing of oil and we'll put a little bitty drop on our finger and just boop, just dab it right on your forehead. That's, how we, that's our method. But if you understand this passage, in Aaron's case, it was completely different. They had this entire bottle of oil and it was upended until it covered Aaron. I mean, it just poured the whole thing on him. And it ran off the top of his head and onto his beard and down into his robes. And he was covered in the oil and the scent and it was everywhere. And everyone passing Aaron would have gotten a whiff of this perfume. And it was made, and this was made more true by this excessive use of it. This, there, there was no stinginess in the, in the, the pouring of the oil on Aaron. There was no sparing it. It was used in abundance. It touched every single part of Aaron. And, and I want you to understand that our church and the church of God, what we talked about this morning, is not unified by ceremonies and doctrines alone. We don't say, you know what would be a cool way to end service every week? Let's just have some bread and, and some grape juice together. That'd be fun, right? Hey, you know what? Every once in a while somebody will say a prayer. Let's, let's stick them in a tank of water and hold them under for a little bit. You know, we don't, this is not what we do. We, we, we have ceremonies. We have doctrines that we believe. Of course we do. But they're not just random ceremonies or doctrines. They're the ordinances and teachings that were handed down to us by Christ and his apostles. And they, they flowed from the head. They flowed down from, the, from the, the unity that is found in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the, unit, in the work of our redemption. And, it, and, and that unity that flows down, that oil that flows down, touches every member and perfumes every member of Christ's unified body. Nobody escapes the sin. <laughs> No one escapes the oil. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. And and the Holy Spirit is the very bond of our unity. And this matters to you people because where the Word of God is preached, where the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's uh, Supper are shared and practiced, where people are participating in these things, the anointing of God is present. And the fragrance of our unity among these things given to us by Christ permeates and it spreads. And as we share the life of Christ together, this aroma builds. And as we, this afternoon, as we disperse, as we diffuse to the hungry, watching world, we will spread the aroma of Christ 
even there. This is what Paul said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Lastly, Spurgeon tells us that the anointing oil had a special use about it. When the anointing oil was placed on Aaron's head, Aaron was set apart for special use by God to be the high priest of his people. And it is those... It is those who dwell in love and who are committed to unity that are better equipped to glorify God in his church. When the children of Israel were in the wilderness, nothing led to defeat more than their grumbling and complaining. We see it over and over again. Why? Because they were only concerned about their own uh, their own issues, the things that were mattered to them, and they weren't con- thinking about what was best for the glory of God and for the congregation. The Lord is not likely to use people or a people devoid of love and compassion, devoid of like-mindedness and consensus. He's not going to use those kind of people for his great purposes. Unity is the anointing that is needed to make us effective priests in the house of the Lord. Some of us are trying to be a kingdom of priests, as the Bible tells us in both Old Testament and New Testament that we are. We're trying to be a kingdom of priests, but we have no anointing. We have no anointing of unity that, that, that has come upon us by the Holy Spirit. So I'm encouraging you. Let's be people of love. Let's be marked by the willingness to lay down our opinions, our agendas, our preferences, for the blessing that unity inevitably brings. Now, that's easy to preach. But man, you know as good as I do, it's hard to lay down your opinions. I know because I've lived through a few election cycles. It's hard to lay down our agendas. I've been through a few meetings. It's hard to lay down our preferences. I've been married for almost 30 years. It's hard to lay those things down. But... Sometimes it is in the laying of, down of those things that are the, thing, the only thing that's going to usher in the unity that will bring power and anointing to us. Last verse, verse 3, it says, It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. David uses the second analogy, after the oil on, on Aaron's head, of Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is a lofty snow-capped peak in the north of Israel. It's actually on the modern border between Syria and Lebanon. Did you know, I looked this up yesterday, I didn't even know this, that uh, Mount Hermon is the only uh, ski area in all of Israel. It's the only place where you can go skiing in Israel because it's the only mountain high enough to do that, and it's covered with snow year-round. It's much higher in elevation. It's about 9,000, 9,200 feet It's higher in elevation than Mount Zion, which is about 2,500 feet. And because of its climate and its elevation, it's responsible for heavy precipitation, usually in the form of dew, that comes all the way down to to the area around Jerusalem. And what, what David, I think, is trying to show us in this, that it's the downward flow of moisture that signifies the way God sends blessings on his united people. Mount Zion was an earthly representation of the kingdom and power of God. But since God cannot be contained by any or by every place, Mount Hermon represents the blessing that actually comes from where God is. Now, we believe God is here among us, but we also believe that God is enthroned in heaven. And so what what David is saying that when we're gathered when we are, uh, are gathered together in unity as the body, that, that something comes from God, from his heavenly throne, something unearthly, something heavenly comes and permeates our life, like dew falling on the, on the morning grass. Isn't that a great image? Something from far above us, 
many, many, a, a lot higher altitude, a lot higher elevation comes and descends among us. And this is important because of the next clause in the, in the, that closes out this psalm. It says, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So the point isn't that God commands blessing on Mount Zion out of a preference for that location out of all others, but rather the blessing is not commanded on there, on Mount Zion, but on his unified people. Where there is unity, God commands blessings. Now, how many of you think of blessings that way. Usually I think of blessings being granted. I think of God, you know, we pray, we ask God to do something uh, for our benefit or for the benefit of our family, our church, whatever. And, and we believe that God in his sovereignty will grant those things. But what he's saying, this is such a powerful use of language here. God is saying when his people are committed to unity, that in that place, God commands blessings. Now, Here's the, here's the thing I want you to see. What can stop what God commands? Come on, help me out here. What, what can stop what God commands? Nothing. Nothing can stop what God commands. Not a thing. The Bible says our Lord is in the heaven and He does whatever He pleases. And so if God has determined that His blessings will, will accompany or be, be ordered if you want to use that word, into the place of unity, then nothing is going to stop that from being the case. And that's important. Because could it be that in our petty things, our selfish things, our proud things that we talked about earlier, that we are actually causing blessing to be withheld because we're not willing to walk in unity? And what is the ultimate manifestation of the blessing that comes to God's people when they walk in unity? This is so beautiful. He says that it is life evermore. Now, I had to think about that. I, I'm a good Calvinist thinker, and I don't believe that there's anything that, that we can do. There's no work we can do to earn eternal life. I certainly don't think that just by agreeing with you and being in unity that somehow I earn eternal life. So what is he talking about? It's not, I don't think it's to suggest that we earn heaven by being united and agreeable. We don't earn salvation by our unity any more than we earn it by any of our good works. But the point is this, and this is so cool. The point is that the blessing of enjoying and loving each other finds its fullness in our getting to enjoy each other for the rest of eternity with Christ at the very center of our fellowship and as the object of our united joy and worship. What that means is that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are going to heaven together. And when we get there, we will not be distracted by... I'm sure if we'd sat down and talked over lunch today, we'd find all kinds of different things that preferences. You like this. I have this hobby. You have that thing you like to do. We'd find all kinds of things like that. But in heaven, we are going to be unified by one thing, and that is Christ. And he will be, if you don't mind me saying it like this, he will be our obsession for all eternity. The only thing we care about will be Christ in heaven. And what a moment that will be. What a moment that will be. That means, now, now this is important because there's probably some people here, maybe at church or some other church that you've attended in the past, that if you were honest, you're not super crazy about. Sometimes they kind of grate on you and get on your nerves. But when you think like this, it means that you are not the burden that I have to endure until I can get to heaven and leave your sorry backside behind. That's not what you are. No! You are part of my reward. I got terrible news for you. I'm part of your reward. You're part of my reward. My joy will reach its zenith as I enter God's eternal kingdom with you by my side. I'm excited about that. Forever and ever and ever, along with all the saints from all time who have called upon the name of the Lord, together forever. We're going to do this together, folks. 
We're not going to go in, in shifts and, and you know, go to our different neighborhoods in heaven. No, we're going to be together. Man, y'all don't sound nearly as excited about that as I do. I guess you guys, you guys did kind of get the short end of that stick, I guess. You know. One last thing. I'm almost done. That can't be stressed enough. We will never, ever, ever be unified by trying harder to be. You cannot white-knuckle your way into unity. You just can't do it. If you haven't figured this out yet, you are way too fallen to get unity right. Way too much pride, way too much selfishness. So we can only enjoy true unity as the Holy Spirit enables us to do so. In the Bible, I said this already, the anointing oil always represents the Spirit's ministry, the Spirit's empowering. And unity only happens as He descends from Christ, from our head to the rest of the body. And so let this be our earnest prayer in the coming year, that our fullness of the Spirit wouldn't be signified by something as subjective as so-called signs and wonders, even while our love for Christ and His people grows colder and colder and colder. I do not care, and I want you to hear me on this. I do not care if the dead are being raised in every single service we have if we don't love each other. Did you hear me? Because the, the, the unity of the Spirit is what causes God's anointing to be here anyway. It's that unity that's like the, the, the oil on Aaron's beard that flows down to his robes. So I would not trade those kind of miracles for just a church with true, honest unity. That would be a mockery of the Spirit's power. It wouldn't be a testimony to it. And so let's pray for real unity. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're about to come to the Lord's table, but um, sometimes in studying for a message, I'll come across something and I'll think, man, that's really good. And and I will try to, uh, you know, kind of reword it or kind of uh, adjust it to something else I've said. But um, when I was reading Spurgeon for some of this, I read a prayer that he wrote for unity. And I thought, there's no way I can edit that. I just have to read it to him. So, But it is a prayer. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And this is going to be our thinking for this last moment together before we come to the Lord's table. And this, will you just make this your prayer too? So he's talking about unity and he says, Oh, for more of this rare virtue, not the love which comes and goes, but that which dwells. Not that spirit which separates and secludes, but that which dwells together. Not that mind which is all for debate and difference, but that which dwells together in unity. Never shall we know the full power of the anointing until we are of one heart and of one spirit. Never will the sacred dew of the spirit descend in all its fullness till we are perfectly joined together in the same mind. Never will the covenanted and commanded blessing come forth from the Lord our God till once again we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Lord, lead us into this most precious spiritual unity. For thy son's sake, amen. Can you make that your prayer? So we're going to invite you now to come to the table and uh, receive the elements. And then if you would just go back to your seat, we will take these together. So um, this sacrament, this ordinance, what we call the Lord's Supper, is often called by the term communion. And that word communion comes to a combination of a couple of words, common and union. And the idea is that there are all kinds of gifts and talents and callings and, and skills and all kinds of things represented in this room. And I'm so grateful for that. But there is one thing, one thing that we all share in common if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this, that the Lamb of God 
was sacrificed Jesus himself for the sake of us that we might be forgiven of our sins and might be reconciled to the Father and have our peace with God. And that is what makes us, that is the common truth about us. It is what brings us into union together. And God in this, in his wisdom, in his infinite wisdom, he has made this ordinance for us so that every time we come together, we could remember that. There are a lot of things that you and I uh, may be different, and there's a lot of things that even quite honestly we might not see eye to eye on. But one thing that we can do together is that we can recognize that we are saved by the grace of God, by the sacrifice of Jesus' body, and that we, uh, uh, that we together are worshiping one Lord, and that all of the things that we might have differences in, he's going to straighten all those out in his own time, but in a powerful way. And I can live with that. Can you? Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Will you just, in your seat right there, just take a moment and give thanks to God for the the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your blood that washes away all of our sin. For the brokenness of your body that makes us whole. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you've called us and redeemed us and that you have made us yours and that you have made us one body. One body of Christ. Each individual members of it. We thank you for that. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to read this benediction over you. Just let me give you just a quick word of explanation. This is Jesus praying on the night before he's crucified, and he's praying these words to the Father, and they're so beautiful. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.